The following Taisho by Shinge Roshi, Roko Sheri Shayat, was recorded at the Zen Center of Syracuse Hoenji in Syracuse, New York. These recordings are offered for free. We welcome your financial support. To contribute and for further information, please visit www.zencenterofsyracuse.org. Thank you. Blue Cliff Record, Case 36. Wandering in the Mountains. Main Subject. Cho Sha Keishin went wandering in the mountains one day. Upon his return to the monastery, the head monk met him at the gate and asked, Where have you been, Master? Cho Sha said, I've been wandering in the mountains. The head monk asked, Where did you go? Going, I followed the fragrant grasses. Returning, I pursued the falling blossoms, answered Chosha. How you evoke the feeling of spring, the head monk exclaimed. Chosha said, Still better is the dripping of autumn dew from the full-blown lotus flowers. Secho later added, I am grateful to you for your answer. Secho's verse. The whole world without a speck of dust. How can one's eyes not open? Going, he followed the fragrant grasses. Returning, he pursued the falling blossoms. A weary crane perches in a wintry tree. A mad monkey shrieks on an ancient cliff. Chosha's infinite Meaning. As you may have noticed, there is a, an ehai, a plaque for someone deceased, on the altar. I just found out that Elsie Mitchell 
the founder of Cambridge Buddhist Association, passed away on Monday, uh, October 17th. I got an email from my friend Dokoro Osho. He was the abbot at CBA from 2004 until this year when in July the place that some of us remember so well, Spark Street, was sold. So the end of Cambridge Buddhist Association and the end of a great pioneer, uh, American pioneer of Zen, L.C. Mitchell. I was looking at an article about her by David Chadwick, who wrote Thank You and OK, a book that a number of you know. We have many deep in Nen, deep Dharma connections with Elsie Mitchell. Some of you know how important she was to Myo-on Maureen Stewart when she moved from New York City to Boston area. And eventually Maureen became the head of Cambridge Buddhist Association, both the president of the board and also the teacher at Sparks Street, 75 Sparks Street. And also other connections through Yasutani Roshi, through Soen Roshi, through Edo Roshi, and D.T. Suzuki. She was also a very close friend of uh, Shunryu Suzuki Roshi, who started San Francisco Zen Center, where David Chadwick practiced from 1966 on. So I just wanted to share a few things with you from uh, his article about her. Some of you uh, may know that she and her husband, John Mitchell, were in Japan in the fall of 1980. 57 to record the liturgy at Eheji. And I remember one of the first um, great acquisitions of my Zen life was that boxed set, uh, that LP boxed set of records of the uh, Zen chanting at Eheji from their work there. They traveled carrying boxes of tapes and a small but high-tech tape recorder encased in stainless steel with a special battery-powered recorder that could be taken into the field. They knew that AAG had no electricity. And they were accompanied there by Dainin Katagiri as guide and translator. So all these are the famous names of the beginnings of Zen in America. Katagiri later went to San Francisco Zen Center and then had his own place. 
And they were there for about three months, one month at Eheji and traveling the rest of the time. And Elsie noticed the importance of obedience at Eheji. But at the same time, she also noticed that novices in the Zendo were farm boys, and as long as they were inside the temple gates, there were no arguments. They were all smokers. After tea, as they sat at long, low tables outside the kitchen, you almost couldn't see them for the smoke, and they all had packs of cigarettes in their sleeves. There were great clouds of smoke around them during their breaks out in the woods behind the Zendo. They smoked very strong cigarettes, players, among other brands. So she was very, um, that was one of her chief observations about Eheji, <laughs> the amount of smoke everywhere. And after they returned to Cambridge, uh, they met Dr. Shinichi Hisamatsu from Kyoto University and D.T. Suzuki at a lecture at the Andover Newton School of Theology. And that began their friendship. Uh, Professor Isamatsu was the first Buddhist lecturer at Harvard Divinity School. So in 1957, they formed the Cambridge Buddhist Association with Dr. Hisamatsu, Dr. Suzuki, uh, and several other people, and the Mitchells on the board. And D.T. Suzuki was the first president. He was also the first president of the Zen Studies Society in New York. And she says, Dr. Hisamatsu created the Zazen Kai, the Zazen group, of the Cambridge Buddhist Association, rather to the distress of his sponsors at Harvard Divinity. His Harvard hosts never invited Dr. Suzuki to speak because they thought he might be a Buddhist proselytizer looking for converts. (laughs) Harvard wanted a scholar. So anyway, then in 1959, that uh, Aheiji Zen Buddhist ceremony box set was put out by Folkways. And that same year, Elsie met Shunyu Suzuki. She was coming back from Japan and visiting San Francisco and met him there. And a great friendship started with a very strong bond for the rest of Shunyu Suzuki's life. He and Elsie Mitchell spent whatever time they could together. And then she went back alone to Japan in 1962 and sat seshin at Ryutakaji with Soen Roshi, which she called very hard, and then met her teacher, Rindo Fujimoto Roshi, and from him she received ordination Fujimoto Roshi told Elsie he thought it best for her not to shave her head, as her husband would be upset if she returned to Cambridge without hair. (laughs) She was away for about two months, which was the longest they had ever been separated. And when she did return, she said she found many not-so-subtle hints from her husband that he had missed her, dozens of shirts to be washed on the banisters, (laughs) and all the dishes that he had used, unwashed, (laughs) and set about the kitchen. 
is what it was like for a woman pioneer of Zen. I remember it well. And uh, then she tells about how uh, the first visit of Shunyu Suzuki, Suzuki Roshi, came. And uh, they were busy cleaning everything and getting it all ready for him. And everyone was wet with sweat or mop water and old work clothes when the doorbell rang. Elsie's husband, John, stopped his dusting, stepped down from his ladder, opened the door, and who should be standing there with traveling bag and grin as a taxi behind him sped away but the Reverend Shunyu Suzuki? Oh, we didn't think you were coming till tomorrow, said Elsie. Oops. He'd obviously written the wrong date on the card, Suzuki told her and laughed unashamedly, most amused. Well, let me help you prepare, he said. (laughs) Tying his robe sleeves up behind his neck for the important day of my arrival. (laughs) Of course, everyone protested, but he wouldn't hear of it. They all cleaned past bedtime. And she told him, okay, the next day, uh, I'm going shopping for groceries. Please rest. When she returned, she found him outside the house on a tall ladder cleaning windows in his long white underwear. (laughs) So this is wonderful friendship that began then. And um, then she had Yasutani Roshi leading Seshin at her Cape Cod house, assisted by Taisan, later to be known as Edo Tai Shimano Roshi, And Houston Smith was at that session. Houston taught here in the religion department. And that's why I came to Syracuse, because my first husband took his classes for a year sabbatical when Houston was away. And so there are many interesting connections with the people uh, in Elsie's life and the people in my life. D.T. Suzuki died at the age of 94, 24th of July, 1966. His last words, thank you. Thank you. So just some little tidbits about Elsie Mitchell, who really did so much for Maureen, made her time in Boston, in Cambridge, very special. So today, Chosha Keishin, he lived in 9th century China, the height of the golden age of Chan Buddhism. He was a disciple and Dharma heir of the great Nansen Fugan Zenji, who was also Joshu's teacher. So Chosha and Joshu were Dharma brothers. He was a contemporary of Rinzai, Toksan, Isan, all these greats. After he received transmission from Nansen, he went to Tanshu, present-day Hunan, and founded a temple. He left two heirs, of which we know very little, Secho Jotsu, different from Secho of the verse in this Hekigan Rogu, 
Blue Cliff Collection, and Kinka Genrei. And then he left his temple. And until his death in 868, roamed throughout China, throughout the Chosha district, expounding the Dharma according to the people and the circumstances that he encountered, often poetically, more often sharply and vigorously. There's a well-known encounter between Chosha and Kyozan Ejaku, another of one of Isan's Dharma heirs. They were out one night enjoying the full moon. Kyozan said, All people, without exception, have this, but they don't know how to use it. What's another way of putting that? Some of you know the English translation of what we just chanted, Hakuin Zenji's Song of Zazen. What's another way of putting it? Right? Oh, sentient beings are primarily Buddha, are fundamentally Buddha. But what? They, they don't know what the truth is. They don't know how near the truth is. So what? How about you? You believe you are Buddha? If you are Buddha, stand up. One is kneeling. What does that mean? No faith. Yeah, so, yeah, they, all, he says, all people without exception have this, but they don't know how to use it. Somebody says, stand up. Uh, well, I don't know. They have not awakened to their birthright of awakening. So we're here to wake up, right? We're here to use this. Here, meaning not just here at Hoenji, but here in this very moment. Yawning is not the way to use it. So, he says, they don't know how to use it. How true, replied Cho Shakeshin. I invite you to use it now. <laughs> Kyozan said, How would you use it? Chosha seized Kyozan, threw him down, and trampled on him. <laughs> Kyozan said, Whoa, <laughs> just like a tiger. And from this time on, Chosha 
was popularly known as Jin Dai Chu, Jin the Great Tiger. But as I said, he was also quite poetic, as we see in this koan today. And another of his poems appears in Case 46 of the Mumonkan, The Gateless Gate, in which Sekiso Soen asks, how can you proceed further from the top of the hundred-foot pole? And then there's a reference to an eminent teacher of old. This is Chosha, whose poem forms the rest of the koan. You who sit on the top of a hundred-foot pole, although you have entered the way, you are not yet genuine. Proceed on from the top of the pole, and you will show your body in the ten directions. This is Chosha. In an excerpt from one of his Taishou that's been handed down, Chosha said, the entire universe is your eye. The entire universe is your complete body. Show your body in the ten directions. Use it. The entire universe is your complete body. The entire universe is your own light. The entire universe is within your own light. In the entire universe, there is no one who is not your own self. I repeat what I am continually saying to you. All the Buddhas of the three worlds, past, present, and future, and all sentient beings in the Dharmadhatu, these are the light of great intrinsic wisdom, Mahaprajna. This is Chosha we are encountering today. So this morning <clears throat> we began with Hoenji Day chanting, commemorating our temple's home here. And, of course, as you know, the Zen Center began in 1972, but we had no home of our own. Close was my attic, but it didn't hold very many people until we found this property and held our opening dedication just 15 years ago, October 18th, 1996, the week preceding that opening rose, led the battle with the cry, just paint it white. (laughs) 
So we didn't begin our morning service today chanting as we usually do with Atatipa. But tomorrow and Sunday we will, which this Atatipa, this Pali verse, is what the Buddha told his disciples as they gathered around him for the last time, as he lay about to pass on into parinirvana. Atadipa, you are the light. Or as Cho Sha said, the entire universe is your own light. Viharata, dwell, dwell in this light. Atasarana, you are the refuge. Ananasarana, there is no other refuge. Dhammadipa, light of the Dharma. Dhammasarana. Refuge of the Dharma. When I was at the Buddhist Teachers Council meeting this past June in Garrison, New York, one of the people there with whom I spent quite a bit of time was Bhikkhu Bodhi, who is the preeminent translator of Pali today, foremost translator of Pali Buddhist texts of our time. A wonderful elderly man. And he told me that Deepa can also mean island. And sometimes we see that translation of the Buddha's last words. Be an island to yourself. Be a refuge to yourself. In other words, he told his disciples, don't grieve that I am passing from you. You have everything you need. Be an island to yourself means don't search outside for someone else's understanding. Don't look to another for the truth. Realize it within yourself. This is your birthright. You are this very place, this lotus land of purity. So dwell here. Island of Dharma, refuge of Dharma. Dwell in the contemplative mind, the mind and the body, one with all phenomena, Dharma and Dharmas, uppercase, lowercase, any case. Every case. 
So in today's koan, Chosha is still dwelling in his temple, but has evidently already begun his roaming practice. What is it to roam about, to wander, not to stay in one comfortable, familiar place? This word dwell, viharata in Pali, does not mean a fixed place, a place to hide from the things that might scare us. It doesn't mean that place under the covers with the blinds down. But to dwell means to wander, means to find that you are at home everywhere. To find true comfort in the unknown. This is our practice. Nothing to cling to. Not teacher, not place. So wherever Chosha goes, he's at home. He doesn't need a map, no need for GPS, no need for any geographical quadrants, fixed points. It's not over there. right here, right in this step. So with faith in this, we respond appropriately to whatever circumstances may arise. Sometimes we don't like them, right? They're not of our choosing. In fact, sometimes they bring anguish, sorrow, fear, pain, loneliness, loss. To respond to circumstances as they are does not mean to shut out those feelings. Quite the opposite. It means to open the heart, to really feel them, but not be waylaid by them, not create storylines around them. That's when pain becomes suffering. So we don't try to escape really allow the truth of these feelings to flow through. They have no permanence. 
They have no substance. So then, when we need to act, act. Not by rehearsing. Hmm, let's see, I'm going to have to act. Ah, oh, how should I? Hmm, let's see, I'll consult what others have done in similar situations. What shall I say? What shall I do? That is simply falling into paralysis. But just being attentive to this very moment as it unfolds, then, okay. Rinzai, as a young monk, was told by his teacher, Obaku, to go to Mount Kin. Obaku said to Rinzai, when you get there, what will you do? Rinzai said, when I get there, I'll know what to do. This is our practice. Rinzai Zen is our practice. Pema Chodron, in her wonderful book, Comfortable with Uncertainty, is being read at morning meeting these days at Daibosatsu. One of the readers has several times introduced it as uncomfortable with certainty. Comfortable with uncertainty, uncomfortable with certainty. Both ways it works fine. If we can be uncomfortable with certainty, we're well on the way to being comfortable with uncertainty, right? Yeah. So she says, those who train wholeheartedly in awakening bodhicitta are called bodhisattvas or warriors. Not warriors who kill but warriors of non-aggression who hear the cries of the world. Warrior bodhisattvas enter challenging situations in order to alleviate suffering. They are willing to cut through personal reactivity and self-deception. That's really an important statement, isn't it? to be willing to cut through personal reactivity, who is willing? Sounds good. But when that circumstance arises, you find that your personal reactivity is cosmologically huge and vast. And how about self-deception? Well, it's not my fault. (laughs) If only they, you know, whatever. Something they didn't understand. Oh, their ignorance. Missing the teaching. The great teaching. When we're uncomfortable, that's it. Enter right there. You'll have everything you ever needed. 
she says, a warrior accepts that we can never know what will happen to us next, no matter how much strategy we use. We can never know. Big surprise around the corner this next minute. She says, we can try to control the uncontrollable by looking for security and predictability, always hoping to be comfortable and safe. But the truth is that we can never avoid uncertainty. This not knowing is part of the adventure. It's also what makes us afraid. But in loneliness, as well as in kindness, we can uncover the soft spot of basic goodness. But, there's always a but, bodhicitta training offers no promise of happy endings. Rather, this I, quote unquote, capital I, who wants to find security who wants something to hold on to, will finally learn to grow up. So I'll continue this next passage. The central question of a warrior's training is is not how we avoid uncertainty and fear, but how we relate to discomfort. How do we practice with difficulty, with our emotions, with the unpredictable encounters of an ordinary day? For those of us with a hunger to know the truth, that's everybody here, yes? Painful emotions are like flags going up to say, you're stuck. We regard disappointment, embarrassment, irritation, jealousy, and fear has moments that show us where we're holding back, how we're shutting down. Such uncomfortable feelings are messages that tell us to perk up and lean into a situation when we'd rather cave in and back away. So Chosha returns from his wandering. He's been wandering in the mountains. The other day, a student in my deep presence class spoke of his love of mountaineering. What did he call it? Techno? Techno? Technical mountain climbing, yeah. meaning he uses a lot of, Gear. what's it called? Gears? Gears? Yeah. Equipment. equipment. Lots of equipment. Hmm? 
ropes and clamp-ons. So Togon just returned from climbing Denali, also with equipment. Probably Chosha did not have equipment. (laughs) But he had another kind of equipment, right? But this student that was talking the other day spoke of his love of the mountains and, and his realization that the view is perfect no matter where you are. He said, in the valley, so beautiful. Looking at the valley before he ever climbed a single foot, just mesmerized. And then looking up at the mountain, perfect view from the valley, no need to go anywhere. And then climbing and getting to a ledge and looking out, how perfect seeing the rocky wall of the mountain in front of him, seeing out from that ledge at that point, and then climbing and climbing and just at the peak, of course. What many people think mountain climbing is all about, to get to the peak, no more beautiful than it was on the valley floor but just perfect. Seeing the valley from up high, seeing other mountains circling him and further distant valleys. Is that your experience too? Quite remarkable. High, low, one is not more wonderful than the other. Some of you do diving in the water, right? And same thing, I imagine, looking at the surface of the water, moving deeper down. At every moment, there is something that cannot be said to be the end product or better than or the most And we must remember this in our zazen. We may think, oh, when I get kensho, that'll be it. If we think that way, no matter how much equipment we have, (laughs) we may come to appreciate the abyss. If we see any so-called difficult sitting, wandering mind, tired, pain, if we see this as the most wonderful thing, this is the mind, okay? We are here to change our mind, not to be enslaved by what we think choice. Well, I'd rather have Kensho than sit here in pain. Okay, here, have Kensho. Feel better now? 
<laughs> this is the way our minds work. Something to have, some place to get, some scenic overlook. We won't have to do any more climbing. The climbing is it. The falling is it. The view is everywhere. Could not be otherwise. So Cho Sha returns from his wandering. This word wandering or roaming, wonderful, wandering. Where are you wandering to? What do you say to that? Where are you wandering from? All we know is the wandering of our minds during Zazen. <laughs> this is not the same kind of wandering. <laughs> to really wander the mountains, wander the valley, wander the waters, what is that? Just going. Not to go somewhere. No end point to the journey. Hmm? Just walking. What is this? What is this? Not going for something. It's a tricky business, isn't it? We say, well, I'm going to session so that dot, dot, dot. It's easy to get caught going for something which we find ourselves getting stuck. Is this the thing? Has it happened yet? All this evaluation creates so much misery, yeah? Misery. Thinking, well, I was better then. Now I'll never be any good. <laughs> what happened to my nice life? I didn't want this. Just wandering. Just experiencing. Just tasting. I wanted tea, not mud. Mud is... How many of you have tasted mud? It's pretty amazing, isn't it? So, just wondering. This is kinhin. Kinhin means to walk the sutras. 
to wander with nothing but no form, no feeling, no thought, no volition, no consciousness. This is walking the Heart Sutra, right? Just walking, nowhere to go. Where did you come from? No. Where are you going? No. Or. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Already. Didn't even get into this koan, but. (laughs) Nevertheless, where is there to go? Tomorrow, we will again meet Chosha and see as the head monk asked, where have you been?